Welcome back to the channel, guys, or those listening on Karen's channel. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Karen Wong herself. The roles are actually reversed, and it's a pleasure. Um, beforehand, I'll say I'm a little sick, so I'll let Karen do the talking today, mostly. <laughs> and maybe I'll mute myself or stop my video for a little bit, but I'll be listening. And so welcome, Karen. It is so good to be here, Lucas, and I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to not only talk to you on your channel, but um, being able to talk about my life. You know, I think it's very rare that we get a chance to really tell our life story to people. Mm -hmm. There's something kind of um, regenerative about it. And so I thank you for that. Beautiful. Thank you. I always like to start people's stories as early as possible for them. So if you could uh, do that for me, I would be very grateful. Oh, early. You mean you mean early in my life or you mean just yeah, as, as early <laughs> as early as possible in your life? That is relevant, at least that you find relevant, because I think that I really get everything. Well, I have lived a long life, so so that we don't make this take hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Maybe I could just say I grew up a military kid. My dad was a career army. And we lived on military bases all over the world. And so I did a lot of traveling as a child. And um, in fact, I remember being at a, a conference once when they were asking, they were giving a prize for the person who had lived in the most homes. And uh, I won by a large margin because by that time, and I think I was maybe 27 at that time, I had lived in 19 different homes. <laughs> so. Um, so I lived a lot of different places and, uh, let's see, I grew up in an unbelieving home. Mm -hmm. Um, I had an older brother and, uh, my parents and so we didn't go to church or anything like that. And, um, I grew up in an era. So I grew up in the post-war era, yeah. post second world war era. And, um, one of the reasons that we traveled a lot was that my dad was helping with the reconstruction of Europe. So we were in Germany and Italy in 53, 54 and 55, helping with the reconstruction over there. And I wasn't aware of what was going on, but later on I heard the stories, you know, and um, so I think all of that made quite an impression on me as a young person. And it made me always want to go back and visit Europe, although I, I never had an opportunity to do that until I was in my 40s. <clears throat> so um, I went to college. I was actually the first person in my family to go to college. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I don't think I appreciated that. And I don't think I put all that much effort into it. And I started out in mathematics, but when I hit calculus, I realized, oh, this is way deeper than I thought it was, because I always thought math just works out. Everything always works out. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. But calculus is kind of not like that. Calculus requires a jump into some kind of unknown realm that I wasn't ready for. <laughs> and so, um, so I ditched the mathematics pretty early on and majored in English and speech and drama. And of course, that put me into a new world altogether with the speech and drama people. And um, did you like that? Did I like it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I loved I especially loved the drama. Um, okay. 
I think I, I did speech drama because I felt like there might be more options for jobs because I at least understood I wasn't going to be a Broadway actress or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I especially enjoyed, I, I enjoyed the acting side of it. And I also enjoyed the directing side of it. I had quite a few opportunities to direct and, and that was a terrific experience, um, which I did then later on, even as a, as a young married, got involved in community theater and continued with that kind of thing at the mm -hmm. community level, which was a lot of fun. But I was also going through my 20s um, after college with my husband and my baby daughter going through that era when there were a lot of political issues going on. It was not too dissimilar from today when there's just a lot of uproar and very uncertain economic situation. And um, that got me curious about how do things like this happen? How do you go from being in a pretty stable country to all of a sudden everything is falling apart economically and politically. And so I started doing a lot of research in economics and history and politics and reading voraciously. And somehow all of that curiosity led me into a place where I was invited to run for political office, which I did. And um, I won my role as a legislator in Iowa, which is other states in this country call them representatives or assembly people. It's kind of similar to the state level version of a congressman, but on the state level rather than the federal level. And I learned a lot of interesting things in that role, <laughs> um, especially the kind of the limits of our uh, capacity to make changes. Mm. And, um, and it actually came about that just before I got involved in this political thing, I became a Christian. So I don't know if the one led to the other, or if the one was influenced by the other, but I do know that as a new believer in a political role, I faced a lot of very challenging choices and um, developed a certain notoriety. <laughs> and that meant um, operating in fear quite a bit of the time because mm. um, there were many news articles and um, misrepresentations of who I was as a person being put out over the airwaves. And it was very disconcerting to, to know that every time I woke up and had to go out into the world, that the world had a completely different picture of me than I had of myself. And um, I came to a realization that because, because I really believed in God and I wanted to follow him and be obedient to him, that I couldn't walk in fear. So I had to start searching the scriptures and uh, kind of understanding better my faith so that I could find some solutions to this fear. And <clears throat> I, I remember certain verses coming up for me that were very, very powerful. And especially one of them um, 
now I'm going to forget where it is, but it's in the Old Testament, and mm -hmm. it's um, where where there's this tremendous army arrayed against one of the kings, and and the prophet of the Lord tells him, um, put your put your worship leaders out in front, put your singers and your musicians out in front, and go to face the enemy. But don't worry, the battle belongs to the Lord. It has all been taken care of. <clears throat> And so I kind of became of the mind that it was just important for me to keep worship front and center in my life and trust God and that whatever was being said about me in the end didn't really matter because what really mattered was whether or not I was being faithful. Mm -hmm. And so I served one term and um, it's a long story, but in the end, I lost the second election. Mm -hmm. um, partly because of redistricting and partly because um, my own party turned against me because I wasn't playing the game. And, um, but there was a great learning in that too, because I had somehow gotten this mind that this was what I was supposed to do. But I came to a realization that in the political world, you're trying to solve a problem by coming up with solutions for everybody but really in the real world solutions happen one by one through relationships yes. with people and uh and that kind of led me in a different direction um and that was that eventually well within a few years we my husband and i felt called to become missionaries and so we trained at the university to become teachers of English as a second language so that we could go to Asia. And that would be an opportunity for us to meet with people to teach English just as an opportunity to develop relationships. And so I ended up going to Japan for three years and uh, entering into a completely new culture, completely yeah. new world. And that was amazing. Hmm. Um, and had, you know, you go through culture shock. They talk about the, uh, the U-curve of culture shock, because when you first start in a new country, everything's exciting and wonderful. And, oh, my gosh, this is such a great culture. And I just love it. And then little by little, as you become more aware of the huge differences in the way that you think and the way that you process information, you start kind of sliding down into this valley. Mm -hmm. But then eventually, as you get to the bottom of the valley, you start climbing up the hill again and gaining a new appreciation for the new culture that you're in and you get up to the top again. But in reality, my experience was that it's more like a W or a double W yeah. <laughs> where you keep falling in the pit, then rising yeah. back falling in the pit again but eventually I got to the place where I thought I could live in Japan for the rest of my life and I could serve here and it would be a very meaningful life mm -hmm. but just about the time I came to that conclusion my husband told me he was gay he was in love with somebody and um, he was leaving and that was obviously a, a devastating experience because we had been married for 20 years at that point. Mm -hmm. We had a 17-year-old daughter. Um, it was really hard on her, too. And um, 
it was at that time I had a couple of experiences that were very, very transformative. And it's very hard to put into words how this all worked out. But <clears throat> at one of the lowest points, I got a phone call from the United States from a young woman that had been a member of our church who had a lot of um, struggles of her own, but she had somehow been, and, and so she had some, let's say intellectual challenges. I don't know how you talk about this these days, but she had a very um, pure and simple mind, but mm -hmm. the world was very difficult for her. Mm -hmm. And somehow she had found a way to make a phone call, an international phone call, which in those days was a lot more complicated than it is today. She had made this international phone call and she called me up to tell me that, um, that God is good and that he had a plan for my life and that mm -hmm. I shouldn't fear. Yeah. And, and coming from her, that was like so powerful. It was like only way that that could have happened is if God had really touched her heart and said, I want you to give this message to Karen. And, uh, that really helped me to hang on that. And there were, there was a couple that were missionaries with YWAM, um, which is an organization, Youth with a Mission. They were missionaries in Japan. And um, I knew them through some, some other friends. And they became really deep companions. And um, one of the things that they taught me was, I was telling him, it's really hard for me to stay in the word because it seems like the, the word is so filled with judgment regarding my husband and this situation. And it makes me, it really hurts to be reading, especially in the New Testament. And he said, no, 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 Karen. He said, read the Psalms. He said, in fact, don't read the Psalms, pray the Psalms, mm. pray them out loud because um, David had these questions and David had his fears and his anger and his hurt. And he just talked it all out with God. And that's what you need to do. And uh, that was extraordinarily helpful to me. And also I found so much comfort in the old Testament. Um, and one of the verses that really stood out to me, cause I ran into it over and over again. I think it shows up at least five times in the old Testament, but the, verse that I remember particular is Jeremiah 5.22, which is that the Lord is talking and he says, do you not know that I have made the sand a boundary for the sea? And no matter how the waves may crash and roll, they cannot conquer that boundary. Mm. And um, so I realized, yes, there are huge waves crashing and rolling in my life right now. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know how to support myself in this situation. I don't know where I'm going to go from here, but no matter how those waves crash and roll, the Lord is with me and he is going to carry me through this. And so um, I ended up coming back to the United States and uh, it happened to come at a time when I discovered that my mother was recovering from a surgery where they had determined that her that she had cancer and that it was 
untreatable and that she was going to die soon. And that catapulted my father into a health crisis. And so over the course of the next six months, they both died. And that um, left me with a lot of decisions and also I'm sure when I talk about something like this right now, and there's, um, it's hard to describe it. There's no emotional load with it yeah. at this point, because it's, it's a part of my past that is so far past and has been so healed that yeah. I can, that when I talk about it now, it almost seems like another life, but I know that probably sounds very strange to people listening. Um, but I remember at the time feeling that it was so difficult because I was basically alone. Mm. Um, if I had still been married, my husband would have been there to help me through this. Um, my older brother had died two years previously in a plane crash. So he was not there to help me through this. So I was basically alone and the only one I could lean on was God. And I, so I don't even know how anybody goes through a situation like that without having, without knowing that the Lord is on your side. Yeah. Um, but in that situation, I also had the people from my home church and they came alongside and were just such a tremendous encouragement and physical support. They, they helped me go through my parents' house and get everything organized and ready to be sold at auction. They helped me um, in so many ways. And, and I had a friend who had also been in Japan who was now living in Phoenix at the time. And she had heard about this conference for teachers of English as a second language that was going to be taking place in California. And did I want to go with her to that? And so I flew out to California, went to this conference. And at the conference, they had a lot of job openings laid out. And uh, you could go around and put your resume in a different box. This was before you could do this online. <laughs> it all sounds so trivial now but there's all yeah. these boxes at the conference and so I put my, my put my resume in a number of different boxes usually for um, universities in the midwest mm -hmm. but one of them happened to be a consulting company in California that worked on the interface between Japan and the U.S. training Japanese business people how to um, relate and to do business with Americans and um, so I put my resume in there. And while I was still at the conference, they contacted me and they said, we'd like you while you're still in California to come and um, basically try out for this job because it was a job working in the classroom and, mm -hmm. and doing training with people and consulting with people. They wanted to see how I would do this. Yep. And uh and they liked me and decided to hire me. So I had to go back to Cal I had to go back to Iowa, get my parents things through the auction, get my parents' estate settled and everything, and then eventually came back to California. And that's how I ended up out here. Mm -hmm. And 
it was pretty scary because I didn't know a soul. But before I had put my resume in all these boxes, I had prayed and I had asked the Lord, um, you close the doors that should be closed and you open the doors that should be open. So I'm just praying that you'll go ahead of me. And if there's any of these doors I shouldn't go through, just close the door. But I don't know what to do. They're always saying to people who are um, newly divorced or, or have just faced deaths in the family, not to make any decisions right away. But um, I have to make some sort of a decision because I have to support myself. So I'm just going to trust that whatever door you open first, that's the door I'm going to go through. Yep. And that door in California happened to be the first door that opened. So I walked through it. And that's how I ended up in California. You stayed. And I stayed. Yeah. Did you stay in the it same job a, for a long time? Hmm? Did you stay with that job for a long time? Well, I stayed with that job until I got married and then I had a baby and um, yeah, I don't know how much you want to talk about that part, but once I had the baby, they wanted me to come back to work after she was born, but I just couldn't do it. I mean, it was like whatever the oxytocin is or whatever that is that kicks in yeah. <laughs> after you have a baby. Yeah, I could not imagine leaving her. So month after month, I would, I would text them i would email them again and say yeah i'm not ready yet you know, i'm not ready yet and i went i did this for about a year and finally i said yeah. I'm not back. i'd like so, to uh walk it back a bit just to get okay. the story of your husband and and your child yeah so um so i had been here um uh, well okay california is a little different probably a lot different than many other places and it's kind of challenging to make relationships here because the weather is beautiful. Everybody's busy all the time. They've got all kinds of activities that they could be doing instead of spending time with you. They can be learning parasailing or, you know, um, all kinds of water sports yep. or hiking or, and everybody I met, if you wanted to get together for coffee, you'd have to schedule it four months out in the future. <laughs> which is very different than the Midwest. Yeah. So, um, so I tried a number of things to meet people. And one of the things that I did was to join the choir at church. And thankfully the choir was kind of like a family. So we prayed for each other after the services every, every week. And we would have uh, activities where we would get together and do things and, after a couple of years of being in the choir, I realized that one of the things that was on my heart was that I would like to somehow be involved in some kind of ministry that would go into nursing homes and minister to elderly people. Because I remembered the people that were so kind to my father when he was at the VA hospital during his last months. <clears throat> and there wasn't any ministry like that. So the church that we were in was kind of like, if you want to see something like that happen, you make it happen. So I made a little announcement after choir one time that I was going to put together a group that would go into nursing homes and sing. And if anybody wanted to join me to come down front and talk to me. So about a dozen people came and one of them was George, who later became my husband. And George, I didn't know him 
but he piped up and he said, well, he said, I think this is a great idea, but I think you should also have a prayer and maybe a little short message each time that we go out and sing. And I said, well, perfect. That's your job. <laughs> I won't focus on that. I'll just focus on the music. So we started doing that every month. We'd go out and uh, we'd all have lunch together. And then we'd go to a different nursing home. I, I did. I would arrange out which ones we went to and and after about six months of doing that, I had a great admiration for him because I could see how he interacted with these elderly people. He had such a gentle heart and he was a very kind person and uh, very competent in everything that he did. And of course, we were all kind of going out and hanging out together and having conversations. And I had a great admiration for him, but he was 11 years younger than me. So it never in a million years occurred to me that he would be interested in dating me. So what is, what is your age? What is your age at this point? How old are you here? When, when he and I met, um, I was, when we first met, I was 42 and he was 31. Wow. Um, but then there came a point when he said, um, would you be interested in you know, how would it be if I called you sometimes and we did things together? I didn't know what that meant. No. You know, I, I didn't want to read too much into it, particularly because the year before I had become very good friends with a man in our choir. Yeah. And we had been and he was about the same age as George. And we had been doing Bible study things together. And he would call me and we would go to concerts and he would always come and pick me up in his car and. He would pay for the tickets and it all seemed to me like it was like he was wooing me. But then one day the two of us were sitting in the pew looking at a Bible study together. And one of the other choir members walked by and said, oh, look at the lovebirds. And the next day I got a call from Bill and Bill said, I think people are misunderstanding our relationship. Mm. <laughs> In my head, I'm thinking, I think I'm misunderstanding our relationship. Yeah. Anyway, he said, I'm just just a friend. Mm. And so um, it was very painful to get over that because yeah. I had really started to pin my hopes. We had been doing this for months and I was starting to pin my hopes on some kind of a friendship there. So I was a little nervous when George said that to me. So I didn't make much of it. <clears throat> and he did call me once in a while and we would like, go on a picnic with different people or something like that. But I didn't think it was, you know, a relationship between just the two of us. But one day we were hanging out at church after the service with a bunch of other people and little by little, the conversation dwindled and one by one, the people left and it was just George and myself still there. And he said, Hey, let's go grab some lunch. So I said, okay. So we went off and had lunch together and happened to be in a place that was near a park so we went for a walk after lunch and we would sit down on the hillside in the sunshine and we're talking and then mm -hmm. he said how would it be if i call you sometimes when we do things together it's a good one it's saying the same thing over again you know so i finally i said look i said i just need to clarify um are you interested in me as a sister in Christ or are you romantically interested 
And he said, oh, I'm really glad you clarified. No, he said, I'm romantically interested. <laughs> and I don't know what got into me. I mean, I must have been half crazy or something because the next words out of my mouth were, well, I don't know if I can still have children. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we haven't even gone on a date. And I'm already yeah, yeah, yeah. To this conclusion, right? <laughs> and he said, no, he said, don't worry about that. He said, you will be my Sarah. Mm, that's really beautiful. So we had never been on a date and <laughs> already he's talking about Sarah. And by the time the conversation was over, he's saying, and we're going to have a little girl and we're going to name her Abigail. Wow. And I found out later that he's a kind of a talker. He likes to talk. <laughs> it doesn't always mean anything. Um, so I was still holding things loosely, but we ended up dating for about six months before we got married. And we had a lot of things to work through because he's Chinese and his family was not too happy about him dating me. Mm. Not only because I'm Caucasian, but also because I was older than him and because I was divorced. And, uh, and he had to come to a place where he wanted to choose me over his family, which mm. that was a struggle. And I had to come to a place where I was willing to consider having another child because mm. At my age, it was a little scary to think about having a baby, but he's, he was 31. So obviously that was top of mind for him to want to be a father. So we kind of worked all through all those things during this six months period. And then we ended up getting married and, uh, and I had a little bit of trouble getting pregnant, but um, she was born about. 18 months after we got married oh. eventually i had to give up my job um or i had to, i had to cut back my job because i had a very high-powered job and they were asking me to go to russia and start up a new uh group mm. working on the intercultural relationship between russians and americans and uh if I had done that it would have been more stress on my life and it would have made it even harder to get pregnant so I ultimately cut back to just part-time, went back to just the Japan side of the company. And, uh, and then I got pregnant and we had our daughter. And when she was born, I quit working because I was so enamored with her <laughs> and she's my little miracle. <clears throat> you know, I mean, she's the, she's the child that never would have been born if my first husband had remained faithful. So yeah. it's one of those things where you just can't really understand all the things that make the world work, but, um, but she's my miracle child. So that's beautiful. So now you're, how old are you? 43 or 44? I was 44 when I was, I was 44 when we got married, 46 when she was born. Wow. I'm thinking when my mother had my youngest brother, I think 39 as well hmm. she had six she's always very um she, she says yeah it's not a big deal <laughs> she's just always so funny everyone is looking at her like that that's the biggest deal <laughs> but she was well, very six is, six is a pretty big deal <laughs> it's a pretty big deal yeah oh yeah so your, your youngest sibling is a girl or a boy no he's a boy he's um 15 or 16 now Huh. So yeah. How was wow. it for you to to balance that you had your first daughter was so much younger than your 
second daughter is there any relationship between the two of them for example or uh yes i would say they're friends but obviously it's not the same as uh growing up in the same household yeah. because uh my oldest daughter was already 24 mm. when the youngest one was born she was already married off with her own life and uh mm and often living out from in another state. So yep. we didn't have a lot of contact when the girl, when, when Megan was little, but, um, but yeah, uh, it, it, it was two completely different lives. So, mm -hmm. you know, they say any, any two children do not grow up in the same household because the minute that the new child comes, it's a different context than it was yep. with the one child but obviously with such a huge separation it's it's like two completely different worlds mm -hmm. um but i mean i love both of them equally it's it would be hard to to divide between that you know it's, <laughs> they're two very unique individuals and yeah. and i'm sure that's true of any any two kids and um but the the thing about having having a daughter when I, when I was older, and especially because I was now married to somebody in my first marriage, we were always on the edge of poverty. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I had to work full time. And, uh, but with George, he's a terrific provider and he works in technology. And so I was able to stay home and be a stay at home mom. And that had all sorts of advantages one of which was that I could pursue some of my own hopes for hobbies. And the mm -hmm. hobby that I got involved with when she was three or four years old was art. I started taking just some local community classes mm -hmm. to try to learn enough art so that I could paint a few pictures for my own walls. And uh, then it sort of took on a life of its own. <laughs> and that's what got me to doing what I'm doing now was that whole getting into the art realm yeah but there's a lot of years between between that right yes yes um and of course those years were filled with many things um mm -hmm. let's see if i missed anything Oh, there were a couple of things about the dating life that I did want to talk about because I know that that's sort of a thing in this little corner Yeah, is different people thinking about what do you do about dating relationships? And there were a couple of things that I forgot to bring up that I had made notes on. And one of them was that one of the first things I had to learn when I was single again is that I couldn't pin all my hopes on just getting married again, being in another relationship. Cause for a while I did that for a while, I was kind of desperate. I wanted to find somebody else. And I discovered that that, that kind of leads to nowhere <clears throat> because that means that I am, uh, I basically had to come to a place where I could believe that God is enough. Yeah. And that I didn't need another relationship because as long as I was like hungry for this relationship, that kind of changes everything about me. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if I'm satisfied with, with the life that I have and satisfied with God's love for me, then 
there's a peacefulness and a hopefulness that changes my whole personality. And people can see that, you know, you don't, I think you don't realize that how much people can see through you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's a kind of a weird analogy, but we sometimes talk about real estate agents and how mm -hmm. it's very important for a real estate agent that real estate, it's tough for them if real estate is their whole career. Oftentimes it's easier for a married real estate agent who has a little bit of a backstop in their partner's income because then they don't have to look hungry all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who looks like they're desperate for business makes them much less likely to be someone that you want to trust. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's what happens in relationships. If you're desperate for a relationship, it affects the way that you do everything and the way that you mm -hmm. think about the world and the way that you look to other people. And, um, and you remember I told you about the, the couple that had been uh, YWAM missionaries that had helped me so much when I was in Japan, they came through California one time on a, on a visit after I was living here and they stopped in to see me. And I was telling them at the time, you know, I was really struggling because I was feeling lonely. I was having a hard time meeting people and especially having a hard time um, meeting gentlemen. And the wife took me aside and she said, now, look, <laughs> she said, you have this perfect opportunity where you're not involved with anybody. And this is a perfect time for you to learn how to snuggle with Christ. And, uh, and that had just never occurred to me that that really spending time with Jesus could be like like that kind of a comfort, right? And uh, that was a terrific thing to learn from her. But you know, being a uh, young and stupid, I also ended up getting myself involved in one of these dating sites, mm -hmm. which at that time was not like it is today. But there were um, organizations that would set up dates for you with people that were supposedly matches. And, uh, and I met a few guys through that kind of a thing. And one of the guys was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. He was a big, good looking guy. And he was crazy about me. And it all seemed like exactly perfect. And we had a lot of fun together. But church was just not important to him. He said he was a believer, but he also said churches are just filled with hypocrites and I don't want anything to do with church. But in my life, the, the church was my family. These were, these were the people that I worshiped with and studied with and, and um, we supported one another. And so for me, church was very important. So I was at one of the, um, the singles groups that I was attending at the time and one of the leaders of that group. And I was talking to him afterwards about the struggle I was having dating this guy. And he said, Karen, I really think you need to break up with him because if you keep dating someone like that, that is your second best, you will not be ready when God brings your first best to you. And it will affect your personality and the way that you grow and everything else. And so So I took him at his word and I broke up with this guy and it was painful, 
but it also did help me to recognize what was priority in my life. And, uh, and I think that's what helped me to be ready when George came along. Mm. So um, those were two of my big lessons <laughs> that I learned during the whole dating thing. That's good. Plus, you know, one of the interesting things that happened during that time is I remember one Christmas, particularly, I was very lonely and uh, my older daughter had moved back from college and was living with me and she was probably 20 at the time. Um, this is before I got married. So I'm, I'm lonely. I'm not dating anybody. And I was telling her I was whining <laughs> and I said, I said, it just doesn't seem fair because your father has sort of moved on with life. And, uh, and I'm the one who has tried to be faithful and I'm the one that's alone. Yep. And I mean, I look back on it now and it really was just petty whining, but she looked at me and she said, mom, you don't get it at all. She said, you still have the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that what's really important that you have the Lord? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Have your kids tell you the truth, you know, yeah. get right up Powerful. in your face and tell you the truth. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that was some of my, my experience during the whole dating thing. But um, then we get married, we have this baby. Um, we're part of the church. We're involved in ministry in the church choir and all these kinds of things. Um, we continued the ministry to the nursing homes for a number of years after that, even when we weren't taking the choir in there anymore, my husband would go in and lead a Bible study a couple times a month with some of the elderly people. And, uh, but then there came a time when his career kind of got overwhelming and it was a little bit hard to do some of those things. And he was having to do a lot of travel with his career and that, um, created a lot of challenges. And so, I mean, of course, in marriage, there are ups and downs of all kinds. And, um, but the one thing that we had determined when we got married that I think has been one of the strongest chords that helped us together is that the divorce is a word that's just not entertained. No matter yeah. how bad things get, divorce is a word that's not entertained. And it's very powerful because no matter how bad things get, you have to come to this conclusion. Well, if divorce is not an option, there's only two choices. Either we stay completely miserable for the rest of our lives, or we find a different way to have a happy life together. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of have to work through things. And, and um, we went through some very, very difficult times because as you can imagine, we're both already quite adult by the time we got married we each had our own way of thinking about things our own way of doing things and we're trying to meld these two worlds together and then trying to do that with a baby and with a job and all of those things and um but all of those challenges and difficulties also were teaching us things all the time you know we're both growing deeper when you go through any kind of suffering, you always end up going deeper if you're willing to try to learn the lessons that come with that. And simultaneously, I was working on this whole art thing. <clears throat> um, and 
art is kind of expensive. So pursuing art as a hobby ended up costing quite a bit of money, especially during some times when life was more financially challenging for us because the Bay Area can be financially challenging. So my husband at one point said, look, if you're not going to start selling art, you got to quit doing this because I don't have the money to front load all these expenses. So that's when I decided to start trying to sell. And, and once I started deciding to try to sell, then that meant that I had to learn more and get better. And the learning more and getting better drove me down the path of um, taking these classes in creativity. And it was that whole learning this structure of creativity that created... Um, and this started about 20 years ago, I think. So for the last 20 years, I've been thinking about that structure of creativity and what that means for the universe in general. And um, it's just a very powerful picture that I never would have discovered if I hadn't started down this path into art. So um, that's how I kind of ended up doing this channel. That's 20 years ago, you started art about, or no longer, 30. I started, I actually started painting uh, 25 years ago, but yeah. the, the serious mm -hmm. trying to understand how to create work that was meaningful and beautiful, that started about 20 years ago. Yeah. And did you manage to, to sell? Oh, well, for a number of years, I sold quite a lot of art. Yeah. Nice. Um, up until the, um, I would say up until the economic crash that came about because of the whole housing crisis in yeah. 2009, 2010, 2011, when the economy took a big downturn, especially in the Bay Area, um, it wasn't as easy to sell art, mm -hmm. but um, by that time, I had a number of people who were collecting my work, and then they continued to collect for a number of years after that. But about five years ago, I, um, well, when I started the channel, I stopped painting because I only have so much creative Juice. juices, and, uh, and the channel requires every ounce of my brain. <laughs> And uh, so I stopped painting more or less. And then of course, COVID came along and I had to stop doing art shows even to sell the remaining work that I have because um, during COVID we couldn't have anybody in our house. I used to always do a big art show every year with like 350 people coming through, but I don't do that anymore either. And, uh, and now I, I, I give away a lot of art. <laughs> nice. Because I, I want it to have a home, you know. <clears throat> yeah. So and I, I don't need the money. So, I mean, it's not yeah. a matter of selling it for the money. That's good. So. Talk to me about the journey with the channel. When did it start exactly? I think the channel started in 2018 or 19. I can't remember mm. exactly which year. Um, I had discovered or happened upon Jordan Peterson 
either shortly before or shortly after the C-16 thing, because um, I remember having seen a number of his lectures before I ever happened upon the C-16 video, but I don't know at which point, you know, the way the algorithm feeds stuff to you. I don't know if, if it was new at that point or if it had been around for a while. Um, but watching his lectures just on how the world operates, I thought, oh, this guy really gets it. <laughs> he sees the same thing I see. But of course, he's seeing it from a different perspective. He's using a different lens, but it's the same reality that I see. And um, so in 2017, I had surgery that required me to be basically immobile for about six weeks. So during that time, I watched every single one of the um, biblical series he was halfway through when I started watching it. So I went back and picked up the first few episodes and then I watched it as he went with, with the biblical series. <clears throat> and as I was listening, what really grabbed my attention was so many of the things that he would say, I would think, oh yeah, that's something that God taught me back in uh, 1986. And I've got this little written in, the, in my Bible at this point. And oh, that's that verse that God brought to my mind in 1997. And, you know, all these things that he's talking about that for him come through psychology and archetypes and uh, history and physics and all these things. Oh, yeah, these are the same things that, that God has been teaching me all these years. And so it's the same picture of how the universe is, but he's just come to it from a different direction and that made me really curious and so i thought well what's what's really in this guy's head so i bought the book maps of meaning and i started trying to read through it and it was very challenging for me because i don't have any background in um psychology or philosophy or um many of the things that he was talking about in that book had a little peripheral understanding of archetypes because when I was in college, we all had to read Joseph Campbell. But um, as I was reading Maps of Meaning, I got about a third of the way through it and all of a sudden it started making sense to me and I thought, well, that's unusual. And I realized the reason it was making sense to me was that this construction that I have of how the universe operates based on creativity exactly maps on to what he's talking about, especially in his chapter on anomaly, which is chapter four of Maps of Meaning. And uh, it was about that same time that I made that discovery that I happened upon Paul Vanderclay's channel. And so I thought, well, I'd like to talk to Paul Vanderclay, <laughs> but I didn't know how to make arrangements to do that. So I noticed yeah. he was having a meetup at his church so i took a trip it's about a three-hour drive from where i live mm -hmm. i took a trip up to one of those meetups got a hotel room to stay in overnight and just had one of the greatest times of my life talking wow. to like 25 people that were of the same mind and it was um it was just amazing experience and 
And then I found out from that how to <clears throat> sign up for one of Paul's rando slots. And then I had an opportunity to talk to him and which forced me to kind of put my ideas in order. Yep. And while we were having that conversation, he said, well, why don't you do a YouTube channel? Yep. Yep. He said, there's no law against that. So I thought, well, okay, maybe I will. And I started by using a YouTube channel as a way to explore my idea of <clears throat> the principles of creativity as being fundamental. That the principles of creativity actually underlie the, the uh, laws of physics. And I've been exploring that by talking to scientists and philosophers ever since then. I will link below the chat you had with Paul it was the first thing that I ever saw of you I think or I watched it after I saw one of your one of your interviews and I think you said it in the talk but I, I really saw that it was true that you have the same mind as Jordan does like the way that you think that's something uh, quite extraordinary because I think you've told me before that some people find that really fascinating and others get like turned off by it, which I think is also <laughs> why people view Jordan that way. But if you hang on to that argument, you get taken through this exploration. And then I think you get what you got when you read his book at some point starts clicking. And that feeling I think is just wonderful if I've had a glimpse of it. And I think I have. So that's, uh, well, I mean, it's a little bit of an arrogant thing to say, to say that my mind works the same way Jordan's mind works, <laughs> because, and I don't mean in any way that my mind is as, as elegantly put together as Jordan's mind. I just mean that I see things, um, I, my mind synthesizes a lot of different things at one time. So if I have a thought, it's not ever a thought by itself it's always connected to a dozen other thoughts and so it's always this panorama out in front of me that's tied together into something and I think that's kind of the way his brain works that when he thinks about something it's connected to all these different things that he already knows mm -hmm. and um, so this morning and getting ready for this I was listening to one of the conversations that I did earlier with Glenn who is both a physicist and a mathematician. And I always feel like I'm hanging on for dear life when I'm talking to Glenn because his mind is so far above anything that I could ever imagine. But um, he and I were talking about, um, in this particular video, we were discussing Yosha Bach's idea that there is no how did he say it? There is no truth that is deeper than proof. Um, and we were trying to decide whether Yoshibach was correct in that or not. And a lot of ideas came up as I was listening to him talk, as I was re-listening to that conversation. And so I thought maybe I could walk through a few of those to kind of point out why it is that I see this picture of art as being potentially underneath the structure of the universe. Yeah. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Okay. So I hope it won't take too long. I told my daughter before I started this conversation, I didn't want to talk too much, but here I am talking to you. I'm very happy that you are. 
Um, so, so when an artist is painting a painting, or I'll just talk about myself, when I'm painting, every time I pick up the brush and I go to choose some paint for, a, for the next stroke, what's out in front of me is a combinatorial explosion of choices because it could be any of millions of colors. It could be um, any of any particular size of brush or kind of brush, um, where I put it on the canvas. There's myriad options of places to put it on the canvas. So that there's this combinatorial explosion of potential choices. So you could basically say it's infinite. There's a the infinity of the unknown is facing you every time you go to pick up a stroke of paint. <clears throat> and the, the question is always, is that stroke of paint going to resonate with the truth? You have some sort of a truth or a structure in your mind as you're painting that you're trying to represent on this canvas. And will that stroke, when you lay it down, is it going to fit in with what you have already? Or is it going to start you down some new path? And ultimately, can it be brought back to the place where it resonates with truth? And all these questions arise. So what's exactly involved in that? And you have the vision of your mind of what you're trying to represent. But then you also are dealing with these materials that, for whatever reason, are always very recalcitrant. They're always very rebellious against the artist. <laughs> when I first started painting, I used, I used watercolor. And then at a certain point I thought, well, maybe I should use acrylic instead because watercolor kind of does its own thing and it's a little bit harder to control. So I started using acrylic, but then when you're using acrylic, you're thinking, wow, with acrylic, it never does its own thing. I always have to make every decision myself. So maybe oil would be easier. So then you do oil for a while and you're like, well, yes, oil has its advantage, but it also has its disadvantages. And so whatever materials you use, you're always faced with this problem that it's never exactly what you need. And I think all of these things are examples of other problems that arise <clears throat> in reality with everything. So you have this resistance of your materials and, uh, and then the other thing that happens is that each stroke you lay down now creates a new context. So now you're faced with a new context from which you have to make choices. Just like when a child is born into a new family, now there's a new context in that family. So you're always faced with context. You're always faced with the unknown. And how do you make sense of that? And when Peterson talks about this, he talks about you're faced with the field of the unknown, a combinatorial explosion of choices. The only way that you can move forward, well, first of all, you have to believe there's something better than where you are. Otherwise, you're not going to move forward. But in order to move towards that better, there has to be some sort of a guiding star. So what is that guiding star? What is it that moves you forward. And uh, so for me, there are, there are certain, one of the things you learn in creativity is that there's a certain set of principles that 
represent or create the possibility of representing beauty and truth and goodness in art, whether that art is painting or music or sculpture. And those principles are, are a description of what has been used by artists through all the centuries This is where it gets very hard to articulate. So, so for example, in a painting, if you if you examine a painting that's already painted, what is it that attracts you to that painting? What is it that makes that painting interesting to you or beautiful to you? And through all the centuries of art, this has been examined and considered by many, many people. And they've come to some conclusions about what are the things that are common to all beautiful artwork. And those things that are common are these certain principles that guide the artwork. And I've said these many times, but they are unity, harmony, contrast, dominance, repetition, variation, gradation, and balance. And uh, each of them has a long list of things that you could talk about. Um, and they are a set of principles that govern the way that you, you operate with the elements within the painting. And the elements are the line, size, shape, color, direction, texture, Inside shape, direction, color, texture, and value. So the painting is made up of line and size and shape. You can think about all the shapes of the things in the painting and the lines that connect things and, and the colors and the textures and the things that are visible to you. But underneath those elements are these principles that are operating. So when you look at a painting, you can tell if it's balanced. If it's not balanced, is there a purpose to the imbalance? So sometimes the purpose of the imbalance is to create a tension in your mind so that you're captured by that imbalance. Other times there's a purpose in more of a balance so that you have this beauty of symmetry. Um, let's say um, repetition. There, There's a purpose in repetition because the repetition might be um, non-identical but it makes it more interesting because you keep looking for, oh, I see that thing. Oh, I see, this is almost that same thing over here. And it keeps your eye in the, in the frame. So all of these principles are what um, kind of guide the use of all of the elements and guide your use of all of the materials that you use to create this painting. And, uh, So you could say, I, I think the way that it works is as you're painting, it's almost as if you are pushing against reality to try to see where the, the limits are. Mark Solms, when he talks about consciousness, he talks about palpating. You're palpating reality. You're, you're touching up to see where the limits are. And, and that's what painting is doing. And 
That's exactly what we do as we live our lives. We try something and if it works, if it's, um, if it's functional and it creates some beauty in our lives or some purpose in our lives, then we will keep going down that direction. If it doesn't work, maybe we die or maybe we just learn that we have to stop and try a different direction. Science works that way. They have a theory, they try the theory, they do empirical um, experiments to see if the theory is true. And if it is, then they can keep moving in that direction. If it's not, they have to find a new direction. All of that indicates that they're underneath everything, there's some sort of a structure that we're pushing against, that we're, that we're trying out, you know, where are the limits of my world? So in some way, reality is constructed on these principles which enable or make possible an infinite array of choices which can contribute to beauty. And uh, one of the things that Glenn one of the examples Glenn gave me in that video that I was watching this morning is that let's say you've got a recipe. Do you cook? Very badly, sorry. Very badly. <laughs> <laughs> does your girlfriend cook? She cooks. She also doesn't like it so much, but she's very good at it. And I'm trying to up my game lately. So, Well, one of the things that people do who like to cook is they will find a recipe and they'll try that recipe. And then maybe they will try to revise that recipe to come up with something else that is um, in the same vein. Yeah. Let's say, let's say I have a recipe for a chocolate cake. Mm. I make the chocolate cake works out great, but maybe the next time I make a chocolate cake, I don't have all those ingredients. So I have to find other ingredients that will make the same cake for me. So I make some substitutions. Does it work? Great. You know, if it doesn't work, then I don't have chocolate cake anymore. Or if I go too far afield with my substitutions, I no longer have chocolate cake. Maybe yeah. if I don't use chocolate, but I use bananas instead, I have banana cake, right? Yeah. But um, when you start making these substitutions, it's almost like you're producing an alternative vocabulary. You're trying to explain the same idea, but in a new way. Yeah. And uh, if you think about a symphony, you could have all the musicians playing the symphony, but maybe this time around, you don't have any brass players. So you have to rewrite the arrangement for string players. So now the string players are playing the brass part. It'll still be the same symphony, right? But imagine a jazz orchestra. The jazz orchestra, every one of the guys in the jazz orchestra is um, implementing their own, their own language and their own substitutions, but within the framework of the story. They're not playing an exact musical line the way someone is in a symphony where they've got the music but they're playing music that fits within the story and to me that's more the picture of the way art works there's some sort of a story that you're trying to tell and within that story there's a lot of flexibility you can still tell the same story but there's this flexibility built in yes yes but the only reason it works is because there is a story. 
Yes. Okay. That's okay. Good. So yeah. that story is the framework. And if you don't have that story, if everybody's doing their own thing, you've got chaos. Mm. But when you have the story, even with everybody doing their own thing, you have cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that this idea of um, plural truths that I've heard some people espouse is a mistake in the sense that if we're talking about capital T truth, there's one truth to me. And then there are multiple ways to symbolize that. And same with art, you have language that also does that and stories that do that. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is one of the reasons I got over my mental hurdle with a lot of scripture where somehow they would tell the same story in different ways and it's still true. Do you know what I mean? It's very, um, it's very paradoxical because if you're so stuck in one frame that the truth is something to be expressed and there are multiple ways of saying the truth, let's say, did it really materially happen? But it's actually trying to tell something beyond it. We always have to try to refer beyond ourselves, whether that's language or art. And the plurality of that is beautiful, but it wouldn't be beautiful if there wasn't a unity underlying it. And I think that unity mm -hmm. is what allows you to see in physics what you see in art. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful way of expressing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Do you have other things that you had written down that you really wanted to get out about your life? Um, no. No? <laughs> I feel like I've talked so much already. I'd rather hear something that you have to say. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing with being sick, I guess, that the voice is not very um, <laughs> powerful. I did have some ideas along the way, so why don't, why don't we stretch it a bit longer? It's a kind of a general question, but I think it's interesting because you are an artist. How do you view uh, modern art, especially through your framework? Do you see beauty in that too? And how do you, yeah, how do you experience it? Okay, well, so that's a really interesting question um, because when I first started painting, my basic uh, goal was to be able to copy a photograph. Let's say I was in Europe and I was in a village and I took a picture of this village scene and I thought, oh, I would love to be able to represent that scene, make a painting and put it on my wall. Um, there, are, there are good things about that and there are also limitations to that. And what you find very quickly and even many of my painting teachers back in those days would say, um, if you paint it exactly the way it is in a photograph, you're not actually painting it the way it looked to you when you saw it, you're painting what the photograph captured. But if you want to paint what you saw, you have to invest more of yourself in it. And then when I started taking this class in creativity, which was actually called Beyond the Obvious. The whole purpose of the Beyond the Obvious class was to understand how you could create boundaries for yourself that would force you into a creative space where you would create things that were beyond your capacity to copy. 
And uh, when I started doing that, I discovered that I could paint even in the, uh, do you know the difference between abstract and non-objective art? I'm familiar with abstract, but I'm not with non-objective. Okay, well, basically abstract art means that you're abstracting something from something that's real. But non-objective means there's nothing connected to reality at that all. That makes sense. Yep. Okay. So um, I could do either abstract or non-objective art, but as long as I'm using the elements and principles as a guide in producing that art, it can be something very beautiful. And there can actually be meaning involved in non-objective and abstract art. Yep. That's different than people that just, you know, there are some artists that, I've even heard some of them on YouTube talk about cha-ching, you know, here's money. And they just throw the paint at the canvas and they make something that's kind of vaguely interesting to people and they sell it for big money. Yeah. But, but there's no objective or non-objective meaning in it. It's just something that somebody just splashed out there or you just get all your feelings out on the canvas, but there's yeah. no cohesion there's no structure underneath it um that i have a problem with that kind of modern art but the kind yeah. of modern art that's actually arising from thoughtful people attempting to represent their either their thoughts or emotions or conceptual world with paint on canvas or or in a in a piece of music or a sculpture or something like that i have high regard for that yeah, I see. That actually really helps me understand because um, in the summer, my uh, parents-in-law, they live in France and there's a museum there in Montpellier. It's in the south of France. And there was a big modern art section. And my fiancé and her mother were there and they were marveling at it. And my initial reaction was one of, I don't know, I almost felt bad being there. I felt that it wasn't fair that this person got so much exposure but as I started to listen to them speak about the painting and then read some of the descriptions as well, I realized that there was actually a lot of technique, but it was mm -hmm. just not, like you said, based on um, objective reality. But mm -hmm. by virtue of it still having <clears throat> those elements, there is still some beauty in there. And I think now I get that because I've tried to listen to Bajot about modern art to see if my thoughts would crystallize. And I asked Paul about it in real life when he came here. Um, and none of it was really satisfactory to me, but this is actually great. <laughs> it really helps me articulate. Well, I mean, I think the thing that Jonathan Peugeot has against um, the modern perspective of art is that he he's not in favor of art being simply a decorative object, but most modern art is just decorative. It, it's, um, it has as a purpose something to look at on your walls. And Jonathan feels that art should all have a purpose. Yeah. That it should be um, something that's, that's useful. You know, yeah. if you're going to make pottery, make pottery that's actually being used to serve yes, people yes. pour water out of. If you're going to make art, let it be an icon or something that allows people. Mm -hmm. But 
I guess my own experience based on what people have told me about my work. And, and so this is not, this is not my own idea. This is what other people yeah. have said to me who have bought my work. And, and it's very humbling to hear this, but it's also very powerful is that they see something in the work that takes them to another place. Mm. So I've never thought of my work as being iconic or um, creating an icon that would teach anybody anything. That's not my concept of my work, but that's the function that it has had for some people. And, uh, and I've heard some very powerful stories of the way my work has affected people. And, um, and I just, all I can say is that whatever God allows me to tap from within of, of what he has planted in me that then comes out in the work, I think that message can be conveyed to others when they look at the work and deeply contemplate it so that the work is a, a sort of a means of communication from one person to another, but rather than it being strictly a visual communication it's sort of like deep calling to deep it's what's deep in me speaking to what's deep in the other person and then the work just is is kind of the the means of communication between us does that make sense it makes a lot of sense Alexa, curious you have a website right with your art mm -hmm. do you mind if i put it in the description just so people oh can not at it? all not at all um it's good for visual examples yeah i mean some of the work that I'm referencing isn't on there anymore because uh -huh. I, it got to be too much to just keep on the website. Yeah. They only allow so many images and I've painted an awful lot of art, but um, um, I'll just give you one example because I think this is for me was a very powerful example. And is one of the things that kept me painting years ago. During a certain period, I did a whole series of paintings of mothers and daughters, not because I was trying to represent an actual mother and daughter, but I was trying to represent what is the complicated relationship that takes place between a mother and daughter. And um, <clears throat> so each of these paintings was painted from a different perspective, telling a different story about this relationship. And one of the paintings was of a, a mother holding a roughly eight or nine year old daughter, holding her very closely. And, uh, <clears throat> and a lady came by and was looking at my work and she decided she wanted that painting. And so when I sold her the painting, I also gave her two prints of the painting framed. And I said, um, these are just an extra gift in case you ever need them for any reason. And so she contacted me a year or so later and she said, I want you to come and have coffee. And so I went over and I had coffee at her place and she had been through some very difficult, challenging things in the previous year, having to do with the loss of her marriage. And, and there had been a stepdaughter involved in the marriage that she'd had a difficult relationship with. And when when uh, she was moving out of the home and having to say goodbye to the stepdaughter, the stepdaughter didn't even want to talk to her. She was just very angry with her. And so finally she, 
She knocked on the girl's door and she said, I know you don't want to talk to me, but before I leave, I just want to give you this gift. So please open the door so I can give you this gift. And so the girl opens the door and she handed her this print of this painting. And the girl looked at the painting and she just immediately broke down in tears. And, uh, and it was the moment that brought healing into their relationship because the girl saw the love that she had for her captured in this painting and recognized that she wasn't, that her leaving wasn't on her own. She wasn't leaving because she wanted to. She was in a situation where she had to leave because the husband had said he had somebody else and goodbye and, you know, don't come around here anymore. And, and it just broke this open for this girl. And so they were able to heal this relationship and continue to have a, a relationship after the marriage was over. And it was not, and I think that was possible because it wasn't a painting of an actual mother and an actual daughter. It was a conceptual painting of the relationship between a mother and daughter. And I think it was that that made this communication possible. That's a beautiful story. And it, it, again, it brings me back to this idea about scripture is that I think for a lot of people, it's too solid. It's too specific. They listen to the story and, and I think that they're seeing a mother and a daughter that are, you know, almost realistic, let's say. And mm -hmm. it's, this, it's a similar idea. Like story can really work extremely well if you believe in it. And there's so many holdups there. But did you, why did you give the gift of the extra painting? Did you know? No. I, I didn't know why. And even afterwards, I thought, why did I do that? Because I could have sold those separately, you know? Yeah. And sometimes you just do things. Right? Mm -hmm. But then afterwards you find out, oh, well, see, there was a purpose there. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that's part of what it means to be led by the spirit, because we don't, I don't think we're always conscious of when we're being led by the spirit to do something, but um, yeah, I mean, no, I, I've done a lot of my thing. I've done a lot of things in my life that I had no idea why I did them. Yeah. But later on, find out, oh, there was a deep purpose in that yeah. that I had no idea about. That's wonderful. And, uh, and, and to me, that's one of the great mysteries. But at the same time, it's one of the great joys, because then you get to see God at work. Um, one of my former mentors used to talk about God sightings. Keep your eyes open for God sightings, because he's at work everywhere and if you just keep your eyes open you can see it happening and uh and i think that's what jordan peterson is doing yeah i don't think he maybe he doesn't know that's what he's doing but definitely <laughs> but he's, got, he's got god sightings everywhere oh yeah you know? yeah yeah absolutely i'm i'm sadly coming toward the edge of my um energy and time tonight but it's been beautiful listening to you and i'm very happy you spoke a lot I was on the edge, like thinking about if I could push through, but it's actually been wonderful. It oh. actually got me out of my <laughs> congestion. 
<laughs> so that's really good. Thank you so much. Well, let me just add one thing on to the end here. Um, Nate Heil of Grail Country asked me to be a speaker at the conference he's putting together oh, yeah. in the Pacific Northwest in September. So I'm very excited about that. So if anybody wants to um, sign up for that, um, maybe we could put that in the in the yeah. I will put it in there. Well. And I think there were also two other names or so that I yes. saw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Martin is going to be there, and um, Sherry Suter, and uh, Nate, of course, is going to be there, mm -hmm. and Paul Vanderclay. Beautiful. Thank you yeah. so much. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. It is very nice to speak to you again, Karen. I'm very happy that we get to do this. The perks of technology sometimes. <laughs> Thank you, Lucas. And I hope you feel better very soon. Thank you. Okay. Have a good bye -bye. day for you. Thank you. Bye-bye.